The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 40. We're continuing today in our series. It's called The Disciples' Path. Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 24. He said it other places as well, but I'm going to read you Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what we're doing is we're taking eight weeks to explore what it looks like to follow Jesus. Uh, We've talked thus far about salvation by grace through faith in Christ. We've talked about water baptism. We've talked about church membership. We've talked about living in authentic community. And today we're going to be discussing gathering regularly as God's people. So for those of you who were here last week, I have not mixed up my notes. Uh, I do know that these are the exact same verses we launched from uh, last week, but we've got a lot more wholesome goodness that we're going to squeeze out of these scriptures. So let's go ahead and um, read these together. Just real quick, in case you weren't here last week, here's the context. Remember what, in the beginning of Acts 2, Peter goes out in the street, he preaches uh, an exquisite, in-your-face gospel sermon right there in the middle of the road. Uh, thousands of people are saved by trusting in Jesus. And now we're reading a description of what it looked like for these early believers uh, as they begin to follow Jesus together. So that is where we pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. We're going to read to verse 47. Here we go. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day... There were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Praise God for his word. Amen. So last week I told you that the next few sermons would cover things that are expectations of members here at Love City Church. But I also told you that these are expectations of members here only because they are expectations of every faithful follower of Jesus. Our mission here was formed by three things that Jesus told us are most important. In his word, we didn't get a special revelation. Uh, In his word, he told us this. (laughs) And those are to love God, love people, and make disciples. Okay, And making disciples is synonymous in many ways with teaching people how to follow Jesus. So we don't want to have a bunch of man-made rules or lay heavy burdens on people that are unhelpful or unnecessary. However, our existence should look different when we have gone from spiritually dead in our sins to spiritually alive in Christ. There's going to be some differences and distinctions, okay? So one of the ways that followers of Jesus should be a light to a dark world is by how much we love each other. Let me read you this. This is... From Jesus himself, John 13, verse 35, Jesus says, The world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. You see, friends, 
we're going to talk today about how part of following Jesus faithfully is to prioritize gathering with God's people. But I believe that God wants us to stay close to heart-level motivations today as we talk about this so that we stay out of the ditches of moral duty and religious obligation. It's very easy to slide into those as we talk about something like this. We don't want to do that. We want to stay at the level that I believe God wants us to think through these things at. Okay? And, and that's, that's the big idea today. Okay? I don't want to guilt trip you or manipulate you into gathering with God's people regularly and faithfully. I don't want to make all the people that are traveling this weekend for Memorial Day that aren't here right now feel guilty when they listen back to the podcast. That's not what we're trying to do, okay? Obviously, a bunch of folks are traveling as we look around. Uh, That's not what we're talking about. Guilt is never how our Heavenly Father wants us to be motivated to serve Him, ever. And, and, And duty is not a bad motive, but if it is the only motive, we will miss out on much of the beauty that God intends for us to experience by coming together as his people. Okay, so we're going to work through these things together. Now, real quick, I just want to say something so you're not stuck thinking about the language I'm using and and wondering why. If you're new around here, this may be uh, different to your ears. Uh, Here, we we try not to say going to church very much, and that's pretty common vernacular. You can read that in articles by trusted sources all over the place, and so we're not throwing rocks at people about it. We just try to be careful about it because it's not really the way the Bible uses the word church, okay? The the word church in the Bible, it's a Greek word, it's ekklesia, and what it means is the called out ones. And so when the Bible talks about the church, it's talking about the people of God, okay? So the church is not a building with an address, it's a family with a mission. The church is the people. It is important, and it does matter that we at least think of it that way. So That means you can't go to a group of people, right? That's why we don't say go to church. But you can gather with a group of people. So you hear me use the the language of gathering with God's people. Gathering is God's church. Uh, And we see here in Acts 2 that they were doing that a lot. That's why we're out of these verses today. They were gathering a lot. So if we read verse 42 again, it says they were continually, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Verse 46 says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So we have a couple describing words here, continually and day by day. Okay, Those descriptions don't relay the idea that these early disciples drug themselves begrudgingly to a once a week service. It really seems like they genuinely enjoyed Studying God's word together, praying together, praising God together. So much so that they were getting together daily to do these things. This is the language we see used to describe what was happening. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not saying that this is prescriptive in the sense that it is commanding we get together continually or day by day. But I do think in what we see described here about these early believers, we have a good ruler by which to measure our own hearts and our attitudes about gathering with God's people. You understand what I'm saying? This should help us as a mirror to look into this reflection and see how does my own attitude, how do my own thoughts and actions stack up, okay? Friends, there are 10,080 minutes in a week, okay? If you count both our gathering on Sunday and community groups, We're asking for, on average, 180 of those minutes 
to gather formally and as a family to experience the beautiful gifts of studying God's word together, singing together, praying together, eating together, all the while challenging and encouraging each other to keep growing to be more and more like Jesus together. Now, hopefully, we see all 10,080 minutes in our week as belonging to Jesus, right? Since he purchased us with his blood, according to Galatians 3. That's the way the Bible talks about it. So this means that all we do in every one of those minutes should be for his glory. And this is why we don't think of ourselves as the church only when we're gathered, but also when we're scattered out into the spheres of influence that God sends us. Our position as ambassadors of God's kingdom and our holy occupation to spread the beautiful good news of his gospel are not relegated to certain times or activities. We are called to be salt and light in every place and at all times to the praise of his glorious excellency. That's the reality. However, God has made it plain that part of his plan for us to accomplish our purpose as his children is to gather regularly. Friends, I want you to listen real carefully at this point because there are those who would claim that what I'm telling you right now is legalism. There's a bunch of people whose legalism alarm is starting to shake a little bit, right? The bell's starting to go off. They would believe that because salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus, that no one has the right to tell you that organizing your life around the mission of God is required to follow Jesus faithfully. Now, I'm going to respond to that, and it's deep. So if you're a note taker, get ready. If not, just make sure you're really paying close attention. I'm going to respond to that sentiment, that what I'm telling you, that organizing your life around the mission of God is required to follow Jesus faithfully. Okay, here's, here's, here's my reaction, here's my response to that. They are wrong. Did you get that? You, you guys want me to say it again? You got Okay, I saw you take the note. You got it. Okay. They're wrong. Okay? People want, people want to start screaming legalism anytime someone tells them something they don't want to hear. Okay? Legalism is trying to get God to love you or to become righteous by your own good deeds. That's what legalism is. Obeying Jesus and following his example with commitment and loyalty and conviction because he literally rescued you from slavery to sin and eternal death, is not legalism. That's love. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Okay? Remember? <laughs> There's no greater love than someone lay down his life for his friends. And this doesn't mean only being willing to die at that, at that moment that, that the opportunity presents itself to sacrifice yourself for someone else. It's not the only thing it means. It means to live your life as if it belongs to them, to that other person. And if Jesus bought you with his blood, then your life does belong to him in a real sense. Let me, I'm, I'm going to read you. I know I'm making a big, a big statement there uh, that, that this is not legalism. To, to lovingly saddle the people of God with the expectation that your life is organized around the mission of God and that you would prioritize highly gathering with God's people, I realize there are many that would, they would, you know, you'd go to set that on them and they would go, whoa, they would juke you and go the other way, right? Because they're not, they don't believe, they really just don't believe that. And listen, there's, there's many things that would lead to somebody being in that position, and I have compassion on many of them. There are many people that have, have, have seen a dark underbelly uh, to church and ministry, 
There are many people that have been involved in situations where there's <clears throat> spiritual abuse, and, and I don't want to make light of any of that. Uh, I have seen the dark underbelly of ministry in, in many ways. I understand. I've seen behind the curtain on some stuff that, that would make you want to just say, bump it, right? Um, I'm going to just do the solo thing. I get that, and I get that many people's beliefs have been formed by experiences of pain, and we don't want to trivialize that. We want to be patient with that and loving towards that, but but. Even though that's true, we still have to let the scriptures inform our doctrine about this. We still have to let the scriptures form for us the reality of what it is God does expect. And we're talking about what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully. Does Jesus care about whether or not we prioritize gathering together as his people? Both us as a church corporately, the way we structure what it is we do, what we're calling people to, but also how we at the individual level think about that and then walk it out, okay? I'm going to read you <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 14 through 25. Most people know Hebrews 10, 25, right? Let's not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. People have lots of opinions about what that means, depending on where they stand on this spectrum. But let's not just grab that verse in isolation and try to hit each other with it, okay? Uh, let's read some other verses around it and really see what the case is being built here and why that verse is in the place that it's in and what it means, okay? So I'm going to read you verses uh, 14 through 25 of Hebrews 10. But first I want to read you uh, verse 1 of chapter 10 because it's, it's a summary statement of what he's about to do. So let me read you verse 1 first. Okay, if I can keep my Bible from falling apart again here. Stay. Okay. Hebrews 10, so verse 1 first. He's, he's kind of opening up an argument here. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Is everybody with that? He's starting out. He's about to make an argument. He's about to lay out a case for the reality of the fact that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, year after year, atoning for sin through the sacrifice of animals, that's a shadow of the good thing to come. What do you think the good thing to come was? Jesus. That's right. Okay. I can get some kids from kids' discipleship do better than that now. They know the answer is Jesus 93% of the time when we ask them a question. So it's okay. Get out, there and get out there on a branch and risk something, man. It'll be okay. Just say it, okay? So yes, the good thing to come is Jesus and his gospel to replace that, that Old Testament system. It was always pointing forward. It was a tutor. It was a placeholder. Uh, and Jesus was coming, okay? So that's the argument he's making. That old system was never going to do what? What does he say? Make perfect those who draw near. Okay, now, so that's what he's doing. Now, let me read you verses uh, 14 through 25, okay? For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Okay, so what's he done? He's literally explained how the sacrifice of Christ replaces the old sacrificial system where we made sacrifices to atone for our sin. That's what, that is the flow of thought, okay? That's what he just explained. And this is some seriously high-level explanation of why the gospel is true, okay? And I didn't read... Uh, like 2 through 13, 
But, but go back and, and check me on this. See if this is not what the writer is doing. The writer is explaining why the gospel is true, how the mechanisms of Jesus coming and doing what he did, it replaces the need for man-made effort. Okay, so that's a very grace-filled message. That's a gospel-centered message. That, that can't lead you to legalism, right? It's the very opposite. The, whatever you were doing in your strength, the goats and, 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 and the bulls and the sheep and all that, None, none of that was actually going to get the job done. That was a placeholder. We needed Jesus to come and do the thing for us that none of us could do, okay? So that's, he makes that argument. And then, <clears throat> then verse 19 says this, Therefore, everything I'm about to read you flows out of a detailed theological explanation of how Jesus and his gospel replaces any man-made effort we could ever exert, okay? Therefore, so... Because of Jesus and his gospel, because of grace, because of the way salvation comes by God's great power and not our own, because of that, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What's he doing? He's saying, since all that is true about Jesus, since we can't save ourselves, since this is by grace and since the gospel is true, here is how we live in light of that. Okay, so everything he said thus far, we can all probably be excited about. Yeah, we're sprinkled clean. Yay, we can draw near. We've got access. We like that. Okay, let's get to verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This, the most clear, probably in all the scriptures, instruction we have to prioritize the gathering of God's people together cannot be legalism. It flows out of, it's, and it's absolutely laid within a setting of scriptures that is telling you we live like this because grace and the gospel is true. This is an implication. Let us not forsake gathering ourselves together because of all that Jesus has done, because of who Jesus is, because we've been set free by the blood of the Lamb, because we're no longer slaves to sin, because we can't do this on our own. In no way can that be misconstrued as this then becomes, prioritizing the gathering of God's people becomes a mechanism by which we save ourselves. It can't. That's foolish. It's the exact opposite of the case that is made here. It's been, <laughs> it's very interesting. We, it's been said many times that the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And there's interesting language starting in verse 24 where it says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then in verse 25 it says, but encouraging one another. That's very interesting because it, it lets us know God has an expectation of us as his people not to gather together and simply think of ourselves as patients needing medicine. And I think oftentimes we, we do think that way. And I think many people are offended at the idea that they're a patient that needs medicine. Many people are offended at the idea that gathering together as God's people is something that they're going to need on a continual basis every single day they walk this wretched, imperfect earth until either that trumpet blows or we are taken in death. 
There are many people that would like to think this is a crutch for the weak-minded, but they exist on a higher plane, and they don't need this. But we see here clearly that we do need this. We need to encourage one another, right? We need to spur each other on to love and good works. So there, we need that in the receiving. I need that. I need to be spurred on to love and good works. I know that sometimes I'm not as motivated about the beauty of Jesus and his gospel as I should be. And I need to get around other people that are as excited about it as I am or more and let them poke me a little bit. Just me? Oh, you too. But here's the other thing I need to understand from this. I, I, don't, I don't come in here only as a patient needing something, but I'm also called to come in here as a doctor and be dispensing that blessing to others, to be spurring each others on and encouraging others on. And so that's a weird dynamic for us to understand. Hold on, I'm a patient and a doctor at the same time? Yeah, this is a weird hospital. <laughs> no other hospital works like this. But this is the way it works here. We come in knowing, humbly knowing, that we need what other believers bring as they love us and encourage us and spur us on to love and good works. And, and it's not even all the time that it's, it's somebody intentionally saying, hey, I see that you're downcast in your uh, emotions, so let me say something encouraging to you on purpose. Sometimes it's just hearing how one another is traversing through life and being encouraged by the fact that, man, it's so good to hear you clinging to Jesus in the middle of what you're in. Sometimes it is intentional. Sometimes it is. I see somebody that's struggling. I'm going to go right over there to them on purpose, asking Jesus to help me to bring a word to them that's going to encourage them or spur them on. It's, it's all those things. But I'm also understanding that I need to be humble enough to, to realize that uh, God is going to use the other believers that are a part of whatever church I'm a part of to be speaking life and truth and encouragement to me. So we are doctors and we are patients at the same time. And all of that is done in love. That's the big thing I'm trying to push us to and see to understand. That's the motivation that should drive whether or not we prioritize gathering with God's people. And I'm, it's not just prioritize because that leaves too much, I think that leaves too much ambiguity. I think it's pretty easy for us to say, oh yeah, it's a high, oh yeah, it's a high priority for me. Our life should be built around the mission of God. The mission of God should not be squeezed into whatever life we have built. And part of the case I'm trying to make for you from these scriptures this week is that us gathering together regularly for the purposes that we see playing out in the scriptures, that's the studying of God's word, that's fellowship with one another, that's singing praise to God, that's breaking bread together, all of these things, all of these things that happen when we gather, that these are a part, these are an absolute crucial element of God's plan to accomplish his redemptive purposes in the earth, which he has graciously allowed us to be a part of. This is not optional. That's what I'm trying to say. And many, many will pull the legalism stone back out and say, what? You can't say it's not optional. Grace! Listen, man. Hebrews 10 is still in the book. And I can't help you other than I can read it to you again. Grace doesn't mean we do not seek in a committed, loyal, convictional way to obey Jesus with every fiber of our being. That's not legalism. That's what it looks like to love God. And for too long, we have let people talk out the side of their neck about this and get people to believe that any you know, involvement in anything organized or, or whatever, institutionalized, that, that, that all, no, that's not what Jesus wants. Jesus wants this freewheeling, everybody do their own thing. Who needs organization? And listen, I, I'm sound, 
I don't mean to sound that cocky because I want to balance the scale with you understanding that I understand that many times when organizations get big and there's more and more structure and, and, and it gets political and then nasty things happen. I get that that's true. I understand that absolute power corrupts absolutely. But that, that suspicion that comes out of the fact that we've seen that happen in so many places cannot be the, the only thing we use to determine then what it is God expects of us as his people. Yes, people jack this up all the time. I, I get that, but that is not the end of the discussion. We have to figure out with the help of God and by the help of his Holy Spirit how to do this because there are people that will, you know, Jesus talked about the church, right? Um, and, and some people would say, oh, the, the church as it is today is a man-made institution. Well, Jesus talked about the church a couple different times. One, he said, I will build my church, ecclesia. That was a big statement in the life and ministry of Christ. I will build my church. Jesus was a churchman. And he was about this church being birthed into existence through his sacrifice and through his resurrection. Jesus said his mission, what he was coming to do, was lay the foundation of his church. Okay? The other time he talked about it is in Matthew 18 when he used the word ecclesia again. He said, if somebody's acting a fool and won't listen, and they're rejecting sound counsel, and they're rejecting calls from uh, other believers in, in the church to repent, then, then you talk to them, then you take somebody else to talk to them, and then if that doesn't, let, then that doesn't work, you take them and you tell the church, the ecclesia. What does that, so we understand Jesus thought some ways about the church that doesn't jive with the whole freewheeling, let's just all do it, organization's bad. If you're taking somebody that's in sin to the church because they are in danger of, you know, wrecking their life and wrecking other people's lives and all the destruction that comes from us disobeying Jesus, there's got to be some structure there. It can't just be three people that meet at the coffee shop and pop a Bible open and drink macchiatos and, and call that church. There has to be some structure. There's got to be some leaders, right? There's got to be somebody that can hold people accountable. And I know that's a dirty word, accountability. Why would I need that? Because, man, you're a patient, okay? And you always will be. I always will be. And I realize when leaders don't do a good job leading the way Jesus did, when, when leaders in the church aren't foot washers, but they lord it over people, man, I was, I was in, a, I can't remember what it was, some comment, thre I get in comment threads too much, y'all pray for me, man, I need to stay out of comment threads, but I get deep into them sometimes, and this, guy, this person was talking about a church that they worked at, and they were on the staff there, and, and they said that the pastor told them their job was to wake up every single morning and figure out how to make his life easier. You know what I mean? Like, no, that's not how this looks, okay? Peter was very clear when he instructed shepherds that it's not to be done as lording it over people. It's not to be done for sordid gain. It's to, we, we serve as Jesus served. We're supposed to lay our lives down to serve the flock. When that's done, it will never be done perfectly by anybody, but it's when, when it's at least done well, that's at least the goal you're shooting for. You can have something that doesn't turn into a bunch of people. Uh, having their, their heart broken and their trust broken and feeling like they can't trust Jesus because leaders have represented him poorly, okay? So I, I want to say that I know all of that is true. And sometimes the reason why people bristle so much at the idea of organized church, they'll call it organized religion, is because they've seen what happens when, oftentimes when sinful men get in the place where they think they can control people. But let me just help you with something. I, I can't speak for every place, but in an absolute, real, functional way, Jesus is the chief shepherd of Love City Church. And that means anybody that's in leadership here understands that we work for him, and all that we're called to do is to serve the rest of Love City Church. That's the mentality that drives this place. And I think it's the mentality that's supposed to drive every place that's following Jesus. 
Because really, in Romans, it says we're supposed to outdo one another in showing honor. It doesn't matter what your place is in the body. We're all supposed to be racing to the bottom to try to figure out who can get under the other, who can wash the other person's foot first, who can show more honor to the other person. What a beautiful picture. Are we going to do that perfectly? No. Sometimes I'm going to have a bad attitude. Sometimes you're going to have a bad attitude. Sometimes we're going to have to repent. Sometimes we're going to have perspective misalignments that mean we're not going to be totally cuddly in that moment, right? That's going to happen. But that's why grace and repentance is a part of this whole deal. That's why the gospel is not just for saving us, but it's also for showing us how to interact with one another as we do this mission together, okay? Amen. Making... Making gathering with God's people a high priority is not in itself legalism. It is a proper response to being saved from sin and selfishness and death by Jesus. Did you catch that? Prioritizing gathering with God's people is not in itself legalism. It's actually the right response if you've been saved from sin and eternal death. Now, however, that's in itself it's not legalism. However, it can become legalistic thus losing the beauty and the efficacy God intends for it to have. Now, I realize what I just did is created potentially a confusing conundrum, right? Which is it? Is it legalism or is it not? All right? I think, I think what would be helpful is for us to look to the parable of the prodigal sons in Luke 15 to think through this. And I, I am of the opinion that the parable of the prodigal sons is, is one of the, and I'm saying sons on purpose, I'll explain. The parable of the prodigal sons is one of the clearest pictures and teachings we have from Jesus to understand the kingdom, to understand who God is and who we are. I understand it is a parable, thus it has limitations, but there is a lot of application to us hearing Jesus tell this story. And so if you're not familiar with it, I'll, I'll try to quickly summarize. Uh, first of all, there's, there's a young man that basically comes to his father and says, uh, I, I don't really care about you. As far as I'm concerned, don't care if you're dead, but what I want is half my inheritance. And that's, that, so the, the father gives the son half the inheritance, and he goes off into a far-off land, spends it all on wine, women, and song. Uh, biblical language there. He parties hard and uh, ends up in a place where Spends all the money, the friends are gone, the party's over. Uh, he's in a pig pen, feeding, feeding pigs as a job, ends up eating the pig food because uh, he's starving to death. And the Bible says he comes to his senses. And he realizes that even the servants in his father's house live better than that. And so he cooks up this plan. He says, all right, I'm going to go home. I'm going to throw myself at my father's mercy. And I'm going to hope he'll let me be a slave in his house. And so he, he, comes, he comes home. The Bible says the father, father's been waiting. He's been watching. And so before the son can even get to the house, the father, uncharacteristic of, of older men who should be dignified in that culture, he, he pulls up his garments and he starts running to his son, embraces him, says he, he puts a coat on his back, a ring on his finger. He calls to the servants and says, kill the fattened calf so that we can celebrate. My son who was dead is now alive. And, and then we get a glimpse of the other son. See, the other son wasn't in at the party. He wasn't celebrating the fact that his brother who was ostracized and separated from the family by his own choice, but, but still uh, that he was back, that he was reconciled. He was uh, outside the house, and the father goes to him and basically inquires, son, why, why aren't you in here celebrating? And, and the, the older son's answer is, I, while he was gone partying, I was here. I'm always here. 
I've always done everything you've asked. You've never killed a fattened calf for me. You haven't thrown me a goat so I could party with my friends. I'm, I'm here. I'm loyal. I, I've, I've always been around, and we're partying for him. And, and the story is left. We, we don't hear that the older son ever comes in. How does this help us? How does this parable help us to understand this, this paradigm I'm lifting before you, this potential conundrum of prioritizing gathering with God's people, not in itself being legalistic, but it can possibly be. Well, what we see in the story of the prodigal sons is we see, two, we see legalism played out two different ways. The first son, both sons, clearly we find out, weren't as much interested in, in loving their father or loving their family or participating in the life of their family. They were interested in what they could get from it. And so the first son tried to get that by rebelling. So he would be much like people who have said, um, I, you know, my, my church is out in the woods or my church is fishing or, you know, I can find God better other places. It's very me-focused, very centered on, well, this is the way I think I'll experience God best. So I'm going to run out here away from Father, away from the family, the structure and what he has set up. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go find destiny on my own. There's something better out there for me. What did he find out there? It didn't end up being better. He ended up finding out that he was much better off <laughs> participating in what the family was doing and within the boundaries that his father had set. The older son, now, would be like somebody that Maybe they are the type that if the church doors are open, man, they are there. The church building's open, they are there. There's an event, they are there. They get there early, they stay late. They're those people we would say are faithful. And listen, that, that is right, and that is good. But motive matters, right? Because it's very easy to begin to believe that in doing that, you can forget what Hebrews 10 said, and you can begin to believe the lie that somehow you're earning righteousness for yourself. You know, there's, I don't know if it still happens in certain places, but in recent decades, it wasn't uncommon for churches to hand out little pins for people, perfect attendance for the year. You know, and, and you could just imagine somebody walking up to the gates of heaven and, and you know, showing off their sash with, with all their perfect attendance pins on it. Um, and, and listen, I don't, I don't think people intend to slide into that kind of belief, but it's very easy to begin to feel self-righteous. It's very easy to begin to feel better than others as a result of getting this one thing right, of prioritizing gathering with God's people. But at the very same time, if you begin to see yourself as somehow earning God's love or worthy of righteousness on your own, you could, you could, be, like that, you could be like that older brother and... and the other thing that tends to happen is, is when people, sometimes when people live that way, when they, it's, it's not difficult for them to think in terms of obeying Jesus with loyalty and commitment and conviction. Maybe they just have a personality that bends that way. Maybe they were just raised in a way that that's, that's just good. Whatever they're doing, that's the way they're going to do it. It's, it's all or nothing. And so if they're in, they're in. But then it's, it's very easy for people that, that live that way, that, have the, that begin to have this expectation, well, if... Because really what they're beginning to believe sometimes is that they are, doing, they are doing what is required to be perfect in God's sight. They, they begin to believe the lie. They, I, most people aren't going to say it, right? 
Most people, if you know, they, oh, I know I'm not perfect, but if you could just peel right behind that layer, you would find I'm pretty close, right? The problem with that is you begin to think that you've earned God's love, you've earned righteousness, or that you've somehow earned this quid pro quo, uh, a good life, basically, that God owes you a good life. And so it's very difficult sometimes for people that feel like, just like that son, he had done He'd done all his father ever asked him. Where's my reward? See, he didn't understand he already had the reward because he had his father and he had his family. His father even said that. He said, son, all all that I have is yours. What do you mean? But he didn't see it. He didn't see it that way, right? So we can get into either ditch when it comes to this. Now, I would say for the average American in 2019, there's a probably much greater danger of ending up in the side of a lack of prioritizing gathering with God's people. There's not too many of us in this decade that are probably on the side of it, of straying into a legalistic viewpoint on this. <laughs> I'm not saying you're not out there, but we need to, we need to cover both sides because the great hope is uh, for those within the sound of my voice that are beginning to understand, for those that are listening to this later that are beginning to understand Gathering with God's people, prioritizing the mission of God uh, above all things in your life. Basically, that if, if your life is a, is a constellation that, that circles around something, it's, it's not around kids, it's not around marriage, it's not around job, it's not around any of our other idols. It's Jesus, his gospel, and his mission. That is what all of our life revolves around. If you're understanding that and you're seeing, your eyes are being open to the fact that it's actually love that motivates obedience, and it's love for God and love for people that motivates gathering together and I think one thing we need to say is, it, it, part, it's, man, sometimes we think of sin very much in terms of commission, right? Like doing, doing bad things. It's very easy to understand sin in that way. But we need to know that omission is also a potential. It's, it's a potential for us to sin by knowing the right things to do and, and, and not doing it. That is actually an issue, <laughs> probably uh, more prevalent among us than, than we would like to admit. And so we need, we need to know that today, as we approach God through communion, it's time for us to think about, do I have anything to repent in this? Uh, it's okay for us to say, you know what? Maybe I'm a person that, if you were to just look at, if you just look at my attendance, we don't take name-by-name attendance, but if you just looked at my attendance, maybe you do, you know, maybe you've got a little book, made it again. Uh, if you were to look at your attendance from the outside looking in, it, it you're there, man. You're a 98% attendance, right? It's, unless you've got strep throat and, you know, Ebola, you're, you're here, right? That, that could be, you, you could be in that position, but what you could simply be hearing in this by the help of the Holy Spirit is that, that your motivation for that is wrong. Really today, what I'm hoping is that all of us are moved forward in our understanding of love motivating our obedience to God, and that part of love motivated obedience to God is to have a love for his people and a desire to gather with his people. And so for some of you, what it might be today is just noticing, you know what, I'm looking at the book of Acts, I'm looking at nobody's having to cheerlead, nobody's having to incentivize these early believers because of what had happened to them in meeting Jesus. They just wanted to be around each other. And to be honest, maybe I felt that way at one time. Maybe I never have. But here's the cold, honest truth, Lord. I don't have a, a passionate desire to be around other believers. When I, when I do gather with God's people, it probably is mostly out of duty. 
wherever we are on it today. Or maybe you're somebody that's out here and I just happened to catch you on the right day and you know, you're you're a, a once a quarter show up kind of person, right? Wherever we're at on the spectrum, listen, God loves you. God's helping all of us wherever we're at. Some of us need to be knocked out of legalism in the way we think about these things. Some of us need to be moved towards an understanding that part of what it looks like to love Jesus is to obey him and to love his people and to be a part of what he's doing. And so we don't want to fall into the trap that either one of those prodigal sons did. It was the whole point of bringing that up. I'll hear people say often, uh, you know, I'm a part of the church universal. Local church is, you know, that's a man-made thing. Uh, I can, it's just me and Jesus out here. And, and it's, it's just, it's very hard to understand if that's true. If we're not supposed to have local churches with groups of people that are committed and accountable to one another, it's just very hard to understand why the New Testament is set up the way it is. Like, why is two-thirds of the New Testament that Paul wrote, uh, and then this book of Hebrews, why is it not just all labeled a letter to the church everywhere? Just everybody read this. Why do we have a book to the believers at Rome and the believers at Corinth and believers at Galatia and the believers at Philippi, the believers at Thessalonica? Why, why, do we, why is it written to all these different churches in different places if that's not the way that God intended for this thing to be set up? Okay, so I know there's a lot of dribble out there. I know you could get on the internet and find 15 opinions probably to counter everything I've said today. I'm just asking you to take your Bible and to ask the Holy Spirit to help you see this the way he sees it because that's all I want. That's all I care about. I just want to see this the way God sees it. I want my life to reflect. I want us as a church to reflect the reality of God's love for us and the fact that we really love him as well. I think part of how we do that is by loving each other. And I think if we love each other, we're going to really be passionate about and desirous of being in each other's presence. Amen. May we be a people who truly love God and love one another and are committed to consistent, grace-filled rhythms of gathering for his glory and our good. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you for your word that is true. Thank you, God, that uh, you are so wise, that you see the wretched inner workings of our heart. You know, God, that some of us, Lord, some of us are prone to just want to do our own thing. Some of us think we know more than you. Some of us are just foolish that way. But God, some of us are also foolish in an opposite way. Some of us are foolish enough to think we can earn your love, we can earn righteousness. Some of us, God, we're, <laughs> we haven't read Hebrews 10 enough times. So God, please help us. Please, Lord, form and shape our hearts to believe these gospel truths. Lord, they're here for us. You've placed them in your word. God, please help us to quit basing what we believe so much off of experiences. Not that you can't use those to shape us and help us and mold us, God, but too many times we're letting those be the primary source of how it is we're going to believe, Lord. Your word is perfect and whole and true, and we can turn to it to understand how it is you see these things. God, help us to quit caring so much about how we see it and help us to seek with passion to understand how you see it. We love you so much, Lord. Thank you for your church. Thank you, God, for the gift of giving us one another. Thank you, God, that you've called us to be humble patients, but also skilled doctors. Thank you, God, you've called us to 
all at once to be receiving medicine from one another but doing surgery on one another. God, I don't know how that works. That's, that's impossible, but God, you've called us to lots of things that are impossible if we're only leaning on our own strength. So I thank you as we realize what you've called us to as your church. Even the simplest parts of what it means to be your people, we realize yet again how much we need you. We can't, we can't be receiving from one another and also giving all at the same time, God, without your help. Hallelujah. God, help us to be humble in knowing our need, but also confident in knowing that you're with us so that we can fulfill our role as your people in the earth. Thank you for calling us and making us ambassadors of this gospel. Thank you, God, for giving the message of reconciliation to us, your people, that it can be upon our lips, that it can flow out of our lives and out of our love for one another. God, please help us to continue to grow as this church, Lord, to grow in our love for one another so that, God, we can fulfill this vision you have, this desire that you've told us that we would be a beacon of light in a world that is dark and, and ever darker. God, help us to be quick to forgive. Help us to be humble. Help us, God, to really spend time thinking about how we're going to outdo one another in showing honor. Lord, we need your help for these things. We are not prone to them naturally. Lord, our natural bend is selfishness, self-focus, and to just think about what it is we want. But Lord, you bought us, and you paid for us with blood. And so we ask that you would continue to help us to see things that way. We love you, and we exalt you. We worship you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.com. Dot org.